Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello. Kami the Fulcher and 100,000 welcomes to you, all of you, to the Indie Football Podcast. I am Ed Malian, and we have a fairly busy old show for you this week with a focus on the big game from Sunday, Chelsea's 2-1 win over Tottenham at Wembley, but also touching on every Premier League game, a brief look at La Liga, which got underway this weekend, and a glance ahead to the Champions League draw. But I am nowhere near equipped to address so many issues of such importance on my own, and thus I have drafted in a couple of my nearest and dearest to help me break this all down. So today, rising above the noise, we have the man, the legend, the double-barreled weapon, it's Jack Pitbrook. Good afternoon, Ed. Good afternoon to you, Jack. And finally, please allow me to present Miguel Delaney to you, Chief Football Writer of The Independent. Miguel, hello. Hello. How was your weekend? Yep, good. After, Especially after that uh, Irish welcome, after half a dec- over half a decade in London, I finally feel truly welcome. There are, there are many football podcasts, but few as culturally aware, and that's why we, we toss in the Gaelic. Uh, Irish, you'd call it, really. Irish, yeah, Irish, yeah. sorry. Uh, apologies yeah. for that. So, so you, welcome as being in O'Neill's on Wardour Street. Yeah, or this one. <laughs> or this one <laughs> in, in Stockwell, if you've yeah. never been. Uh, you two in front of me, Jack and Miguel, you were both at Wembley on Saturday, uh, Sunday for Tottenham Chelsea. Uh, so this feels pretty obviously like the best place to start. The first clash of the season between two of last season's top four and indeed last season's top two, if I remember correctly. Marcus Alonso got the opening goal. Michi Batshuayi's weird time in West London continued with a brilliantly taken own goal. But Chelsea prevailed with a late winner. So, Miguel, you start us off. What's the biggest thing that we are taking away from this game? Well, I remember as myself and Jack were sitting there three minutes from the end trying to work out our intros, we were kind of discussing what's actually the, the bigger story here. Is it Tottenham's Wembley uh, jinx or supposed jinx or the champions avoiding a crisis. And I think probably in the long term, it's the latter, actually, because, I mean, given the amount of problems Chelsea had going into, into this game, and uh, yeah, I, I actually, before the match, I was wondering how to avoid defeat. So to win it like that, okay, they weren't necessarily their best. It was quite a constrained performance. Um, you know, there's been a few accusations about whether it was negative or that. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think it was... The fact there's been so many parallels brought up between two years ago, and even after the game, Courtois was speaking in the mix zone, and so he specifically mentioned two years ago, more so the fact that for the second game in 2015, it was away to Manchester City, uh, who had also, just like Spurs, been the second place team the previous season, and they got wiped out, whereas this time the opposite happened. And I think, I, I think it, is, it genuinely shows that there are more different, or many more differences to 2015. I think you, you wouldn't have seen a rally like we did against Burnley last week. I mean, you, you wouldn't have seen this kind of, as Conte put it, the spirit laid on. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was clearly a tactical masterclass from Antonio Conte. It's strange to think that looking, you know, before the game, it felt as if he was almost on his last legs as Chelsea manager, mm-hmm. and then he comes up with this new system, this sort of three-five-two, which is basically a lot of the time was a five-four-one, which was an, an incredibly effective way of shutting down Tottenham. I think what I fear from Tottenham's perspective is that in that game we saw the seeds of what we might see at other times this season, which is on that big Wembley pitch teams flooding the the middle Spurs have to go wide mm-hmm. but without Kyle Walker and in this instance without Danny Rose I didn't think they had the pace or the incision out wide to, to get around the side I mean for, yeah, for all the talk about Spurs and whether they can make, take the next step and Wembley and all this I think that is one of their biggest issues that there's an occasional bluntness to the team. I mean, even Kane said afterwards oh we had eight nine chances nothing to worry about 
But even most of those chances are actually, okay, his shot to hit the post, but still that's kind of him cutting in trying to do something special from the edge of the box. And then loads of, loads of kind of just flashed crosses, which is what we've seen from Spurs in a lot of these sort of big games. Yeah, I think there's a, a legitimate criticism to make of Tottenham, which is that while they are they're com- they're so compelling to watch when they're on it, particularly when they're throwing everyone forward, they don't really... I mean, they're not like Manchester City, who create very good chances mm. by cutting through teams. A lot of it is you know, throwing the ball into the box, mm. pushing and pushing and pushing, and eventually overwhelming the opponents with energy. Uh, and, but usually they have Kane, who can suddenly make a run out of nowhere to finish exactly. it. But, you know, if you're playing against a really well-organised, mm. effectively a back five, like we saw on Sunday, then I think sometimes Tottenham lack the, you know, that kind of extra edge but to, to create the high-quality chance. That was the thing as well. I think, um, you know, obviously in December, or in January, Deli Ali scored twice against, Spur- against uh, Chelsea. Then he scored again in the FA Cup. And this was obviously something that Conte had looked at as well because he gave, I think David Luiz's specific instructions apparently were to kind of track the runs of uh, Ericsson and particularly Dele Alli. And we saw in this game that they didn't get the same sort of openings. And uh, indeed, you wrote something about David Luiz's role uh, today. You yeah. can read that on independent.co.uk slash football. Uh, and w- roughly what was the thrust of, of that piece? You felt that David Luiz stepped into that midfield role with, with greater plot. Yeah. And you think that could change their, their plans for the rest of this window and, and possibly for the rest of the season? I mean, it was, okay, it was a very specific role for a very specific game, but certainly Luis, David Luiz has played in that position before and he hasn't been as kind of influential as he has been here. He's always been a bit more, I suppose, I mean, this is supposed to be a, a trend of his, spe- of his second spell at Chelsea, that, whereas previously used to be an effective player, but a very erratic one that kind of erratic part of his game is almost gone. And I think that's down to the way Conte coached him. Even uh, like Luis spoke after, after the game about how the, run, the specific runs he was told to make. Um, and obviously, he can, he can fulfill that role for Conte. Uh, and I think, it, it, well, I've heard, it is causing a little bit of reconsideration at Chelsea and particularly with Conte over the transfer plans. I mean, they still want four players. One of those has been a midfielder with Danny Drinkwater, but Dan, they're not going to get Danny Drinkwater less than 40 million, which you would say is like questionable maybe for... Players not Feels a touch expensive. Yeah, yeah, for a player who's you, who's not going to who, who you wouldn't think is going to immediately drop into your first team, um, but I think they could reassess and maybe switch attention to Van Dijk because that's not that story's not completely finished yet, despite um, despite Southampton's stance. But obviously, Van Dijk would then become first choice centre half if they got him, and David Luiz would be someone who kind of you know shifts between the truth. What's two. interesting for me, uh, obviously, a lot of un- annoyingly a lot of games at this point in the season get seen through the transfer lens yeah. because it's something that you can still address once we're out the transfer window that you, you can't add or take away players. So it's more about what you can do with the squad you've got and, and that is a different sort of aspect to, to the manager's uh, skill set, I, I guess. Marcus Alonso was important mm. in this in this win. It, when he arrived, he arrived and it was kind of like, oh yeah, I remember he was on loan at Bolton and et cetera, et cetera. And then he had a great season mm. last year, um, an important part on the left of, of Chelsea's switch to the 3-4-3. What are the implications for him? Because Chelsea haven't been shy in looking to upgrade him. Yeah. Uh, Alexandro is, what, £70 million pounds do, worth of player, they're saying now. Do we necessarily think it's an upgrade or is it more that... You I mean, need two but, of but, them. Yeah, you need... Uh, it's like, uh, that's the issue that um, Pochettino's had at Spurs as well because because the, there's such a burden on the fullbacks now running, you need two. And Chelsea, d- Chelsea don't have that. So if Alonso, and we, we saw it last week with Moses is out, then they, they're completely lacking as a team. So he, he, he does need four full-back or four wing-backs in total. Yeah, I mean, a lot on the subject of the time in the transfer window, Alonso is actually a really good example of why sometimes it's beneficial to start the season before the window shuts. Yeah. In the sense <laughs> that last year, 
Chelsea didn't really know what they wanted. Then they started the season and all of, you know, towards the end of the window, Conte mm. realised, hold on a second, we need another centre-back who can play in a three and a proper left wing-back because we don't really have one. They signed Luis and Alonso and they were two of the most important players to win the league. So that's the yeah. direct opposite yeah. of kind of what everyone's been saying yeah. Yeah, for the so last it, week, yeah. really. Yeah. I think it's very, I mean, I can see why people say, oh, we must stop the window in the middle yeah, of yeah, August but, before the season. But in reality, I think, particularly in the next kind of eight or nine days, we'll see lots of teams who've played their first two games and thought, Christ, hold on a second. We don't have a right back. And then that happens, we, happens so often. Yeah, we got this guy in, but he's actually useless. Yeah. And then they'll go back into the market. And that's why that early, after the early August dip, which I think we've now had, yep. there's going to be quite a lot of activity in the next yeah. week as teams fill gaps, which have only just become apparent to them. The other side of this debate as well is, I mean, and I think it's, it's relevant to this whole, all the Chelsea kind of crisis stuff, but I mean, so much has been made of Conte and his disgruntled transfers, but I think it's easy to forget he was actually exactly the same last August in his first summer for Chelsea. He didn't get any of the first-choice players he wanted, but then once the window closed, he basically just looked at what he had, reassessed and reconfigured. And I don't think there's a manager in the Premier League at the moment who was as good at doing that as he is. And I, th- I think it's a, it is a massive advantage for Chelsea well, ta- still. T- tactically, he's always been very astute. We've mm. seen that in, in every single job he's done. That Italy team he had at the Euros was... The it's Italian. Actually, yeah. I'm, I, I was doing the opening game, and, and the Italian journalists were saying this is the worst Italy squad yeah. since the 1950s. And that first game, they blew away Belgium, who were kind of one of the really fancy teams for the, this competition. Um, he did get Bakayoko, who made his debut. Mm. What did you make of, of Bakayoko on his uh, first uh, appearance? I think probably hard. To, I mean, it wasn't kind of like a performance he had at Monaco. It was a little bit hard to judge him because of the nature, the nature of the game. But he was he was solid. I can't remember anything he did wrong. Yeah. Which in a match like that is pretty much all he could do. I mean, I didn't think he looked fully fit. But yeah. I think the first thing he did after about seven seconds was flatten Musa Dembele, oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is actually quite quite difficult to do. No, it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like running uh, into a wall. So yeah, I mean, clearly he's not up to full, up to speed yet. But equally, he's a really good player. We saw from Monaco last season, and I'm sure that once he's once he's slotted in, he's probably gives them a more like a more uh, like physically aggressive. Mm. Uh, player than Nemanja Matic would be which is why Conte prefers him I feel we've discussed uh, Conte I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts Jack on on Pochettino um, you know did he get anything wrong necessarily or were they just beaten you know occasionally you know you do the right thing but you just end up losing to a superior team or do you think that there are there are there are different ways he could have gone about this game well yeah I mean that is that is the big question I didn't like I said I I wasn't that impressed with Spurs even though they did dominate the game I didn't think they I didn't think they really did enough to win it um could they could they've done it any differently I'm not sure I mean it's it's not a great bench you know they had humans who they had on the bench human son Musa Sissoko Vincent Janssen mm. Kevin Vimmer Crikey. I mean yeah like the big issue with Spurs is and this has been an issue for a few years now is that they they need a better winger yeah. because they don't have one but they have been reluctant to spend the money on a top winger, which is why they've gone for you know what you might call Europa League level wingers like Clinton well, and G and George Kevin and Kudu. And a lot of Spurs attacking ultimately comes down to what, what seems like a template. So it feels like they need someone to just go outside at the odd time, make them less less predictable, and to do the unpredictable. Yeah, I mean that explains why for so long they've really wanted Wilfred Zaha. Mm. They've not been able to get him. I think in part because you know he would want big money and Crystal Palace would want it more money than Tottenham would be willing to spend. But it's kind of the problem if you have like if you have a coach like Pochettino who is that systematic and who has such a clear idea about how he wants the game to be played, like introducing a little bit of uh, imagination or mm. flexibility or basically thinking beyond the constraints of that of it's that what system. Alan used to call yeah. the chaos. Yeah, like yeah. that is that, that's yeah. kind of the dilemma of coaching attacking football, basically. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it's interesting to me because 
It's uh, a discussion we had the other week about Mourinho's coaching of attacking mm. is in that he kind of gets good attackers in and he kind of lets them do what they want. Yeah, completely. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't militarily coach them. And, and well, Zaha... Not Bayern on the defensive side. But no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. But I mean the in, yeah. in attack. Zaha is exactly that. And, and kind of Yannick Balassi before him, mm. those sort of guys who... It's almost like they don't even know what they're going to do next. So how on earth can the managers going to know what they're going to do next? And I, I agree. Looking at Spurs, I think sometimes there is a slightly sterile aspect to them where you're basically expecting Deli Ali to produce a wonder goal or Christian Eriksen to pick the perfect pass. Fortunately, yeah. they're both very good. They're both very capable of doing that. But if they could sign someone who is capable of just beating two men, basically what it is, and that's what Zaha brings, it is you can stand him up against a player one-on-one and he's probably one of the best players in the Premier League, if not the best player in the Premier League at doing that. And their their interest in him is obviously dead because, apart from anything, he signed a new contract and he's injured now. But I'd be interested to see what Spurs can do at the end of the window. Traditionally, it's their best time. It's their most busy time, Jack. But do you expect them to to get a real difference maker or are they just going to be fishing in what you, as you described, kind of a Europa League bargain bin? Well, I mean, it depends how you, you know, how you would classify Ross Barkley. I still, I mean, I've thought all all summer that he would have, he will end up at Spurs probably around, you know, on on deadline day for in around 20, 25 million. Um, I'm, I'd be, I don't imagine they'll get a kind of higher profile attacking player than that. There's obviously a few players like Balde, abroad who they have an interest in who might be able to give them a bit extra but even then you wonder if they're you know perhaps closer to the kind of Nkudu level than to the top level and so I don't imagine that we'll see like very different attacking personnel at Tottenham from what they currently have and even Barkley I think ultimately I think we might have discussed this before is someone who I think would more likely play in a deeper central role for Tottenham rather than further up out wide yeah There's you know, some, someone who could become like a Moussa Dembele I think so, yeah. more mm. style of, of midfielder uh, and Miguel Chelsea, I mean, Conte's been very outspoken that they wanted more guys. You said about the David Luiz thing, could that change their plans? What do we really think they're going to get done in the next, what, it, less than uh, 10 yeah, days now? Yeah, um, it, it feels like it's a bit too short a spell to bring in that many players. I'd imagine two or three. Um, I said what, two weeks ago in this pod, I think that, that if they got two or three players, they'd actually be my favourites. And given given almost both the psychological effect of Sunday's win and everything it represented, uh, I'd, I'd nearly have them to win the title again. I know it feels like so so drastic from one to the other like that, but it was, I, th- I think it, w- it was a very credible win in that sense. And if they can add to the squad, and let's not forget the players are, they're already missing from this game as well. So you fancy Chelsea for the title, but it is Manchester United who are top of the league after another 4-0 victory, this time against Swansea City. Uh, Eric Bailly had them in front just before half-time. But then three goals in four late minutes from the francophone trio, Paul Pogba, Anthony Martial and Romulu Lukaku sealed a big win. Are they back? They're very, very impressive. Um, and it does look, I mean, from this juncture, I think you'd be quite, it would take, I'm brave to say they're not going to challenge and I'm not going to say that. Uh, there's two caveats. First of all, they started last season very well also. Secondly, I would just wonder about the quality of the teams they're playing, and I, I know, I know that's you can, you know, you can only beat what's in front of you and all that. But I think there is there is a genuine context here because I think West Ham have a massive problem under Billich. I mean, myself and Jack were talking off air before, but I mean, we've heard separately from I, t- I tweeted this out on Saturday actually. I heard separately from people at, at two of the top six clubs that they described West Ham as tactically the worst team in the Premier League. So like, and you could see United just you know, rush through them throughout the whole game. The Swan- Swansea, I thought. United's first half performance was much more like last season until they finally got the goal and then Swansea had to change something. So that, that would, I think they were very, very good and clearly 
once once a game breaks, United are, like they won't have anywhere near as many draws last season. And that by definition will put them much much higher up the table, get them much closer to a title challenge, and, and they probably will challenge. But there may be still a, a question about what happens in, in those games where they don't break break teams. Do you down. think that? Do you think that undoing will be against the big teams? I mean, we saw. I know. I know in the Super Cup against Real Madrid, mm. they got close at the end, but the first hour they barely touched the ball. I mean, you know, City, Chelsea. Liverpool, Tottenham aren't as good as Real Madrid, but they are good. Yeah. Do you think United have got the right approach for the big games? Uh, it's going to be interesting because I think one thing Mourinho did last season, actually, he was very much more defensive than usual. In, big, in fact, it was actually a lot like Chelsea 2013-14 when he didn't really have all his players in. And I think was, the, the real reason for that was he didn't have someone like Manage, he didn't have a defensive midfielder he wanted. So it meant the whole team had to sit much deeper back. And that was, that was particularly the case in the uh, nil-all against City towards the end of the season. Uh, I don't think... He'll do that again unless he's in a situation like actually. Um, do you remember when, they, when he sealed the title with Chelsea against Palace to the one nil? Yeah. When they basically ended with seven seven defenders. Unless it's one of those games where he knows we lock this down now, we do it. I I I, I think United will be more progressive against bigger teams. And it, it, that's it's interesting to watch in that sense. Some of us might have to write a few uh, mea culpas about Mourinho if we do. Well, they're, they're <laughs> rarely sorry, they're, sorry, Jack. They're rarely this devastating in attack. Mm. You say they're just facing poor teams. The context of the Swansea game was with 10 minutes to go, they're only 1-0 up. So Swansea have yeah. to push and they score three goals in a few minutes and the whole thing falls apart. Do you think we might see Mourinho just try and win the title, basically blocking out the games against the top six That's a- and then just trying to beat all the... You know, you yeah. said about Lukaku being a flat-track bully. Is that not the way that United could actually win the title? Yeah, it was obviously United's massive problem last season and every most champions, they, they do the business against the, the, the bottom 14, if you like. Um, that's a necessity. But uh, you still need to... I mean, m- most of the champions last few years had at least a 50, 50 record against the rest of the top six, as is the nature of it. Um, and I, I, they, I think... Just trying to think the United's record in games against the top six last season. Up until the Chelsea game, actually, with the 2-0 win, which was very impressive, it... Um, their actual record against the rest of the top six wasn't that impressive. What do you think about Paul Pogba and the possibility that having Nemanja Matic there will allow him not just to attack more, but also perhaps to play in a two rather than have to play further up as a ten? Yeah, because um, it just releases him. And, and that's what... I said, this is the key of Pogba. I mean, it's, he's a player that, to really maximise his gifts, he almost needs to kind of be be off the cuff, be, be allowed to try things, be allowed... And, and I think, to be for all the criticism he gets, I actually think he's quite a responsible player in the sense that if he's given a defensive role, he's actually very disciplined and tries to stick to it. But it means that then you don't see the the real Pogba. It does take its toll on his, his attacking output, yeah. basically. We, I think we've seen that a few times with him because, you know, sometimes to his own detriment, he follows these instructions very, very yeah, closely. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He, he obviously admires Mourinho. You know, there is mm. something there in that relationship between them. What do you think about Anthony Martial? People were talking about him coming out of this game. Obviously, there was some interest from other clubs this summer, not least into Milan and Tottenham. Uh, Martial looks likely to, to stay there, I think we'd say. Yeah. People getting a bit carried away with, with him becoming you know, this big guy. Do you not think that basically him and Rashford have sort of a, are going to have a timeshare arrangement this season? Uh, there's probably a little bit of that, actually. Um, but I think it's encouraging for Martial from the perspective that um, Mourinho has always been a bit cold in him. He's publicly criticised him. He's privately considered selling him the odd time, but it's never it's never quite gone far enough. Like it's one of those things I think that's kind of thrown out there, but ne- never a concrete decision made. And also, United the United hierarchy would be very very reluctant to ever sell Martial just because how because he's he's a such, such a young player, he's got such precocious talent, and also he's very popular uh, commercially and with fans. Um, but I think this could be 
I mean, to be fair, the other side of it is maybe a little bit of the penny has to drop with Martial as well. Even though we can criticise all we like Mourinho's demands on wingers and be the, tend to be primarily defensive than attacking, if you are in a Mourinho team, you have to adapt a bit. And that's I think Martial has maybe been reluctant to do that. Uh, so if he, can, if he can marry those two aspects of his game, then he can go on a level. But he, there are sometimes you watch Martial and I think, it, it, I, don't know, I suppose we got to see it against Swansea just because of the nature of the match. Well, you, you just let let him play, you know. <laughs> let him, let him flourish. He just needs a bit of space. Yeah, because he's so he's so smooth. Jack, they are top of the table, Manchester United, but uh, there are two other teams that have won both of their games, as we'd all expected. Huddersfield, hundred uh, percent from their first two. Um, Aaron Moy showing just how two-footed he is in the opening couple of games this season. A brilliant right-footed strike. Uh, but they do look like prime candidates for regression. They haven't dominated either of, of these games. Uh, the expected goals, uh, which is a, something the BBC are now using, you're allowed to talk about it in public, uh, didn't work. But Newcastle with another defeat, I think, spelling trouble for Mike Ashley rather than Rafa, do you think? Well, I'd say trouble with whom? Like, clearly Rafa is far more popular with the Newcastle fans than Ashley is. Clearly Rafa feels very let down by the lack of spending in the transfer market this summer. Um whether this means that, you know, has Rafa been proven right by how bad Newcastle have been in the first two games? Maybe, because he would have said the team wasn't ready for the Premier League and that's only been proven by the fact that clearly the team isn't good enough yet. But ultimately, you know, it is Ashley's money and Ashley's club. And if any of those, you know, if either of those two men are to leave, it's going to be Rafa, not Ashley. Absolutely. Well, we, we discussed before how the team does look. If you look at it just on paper, the players do look like an upper championship squad rather than anything else. I think looking like I think being a group of championship players is survivable. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at I mean the best two examples in the last few years are uh, Bournemouth and Burnley, like two groups of championship yeah. players or I mean in lots of cases league 1 players who came into the Premier League but because they had a because they had a clear way of playing, a manager they believed in, a you know, a home ground which was slightly different perhaps from what other teams were used to. Uh, they managed to get enough home wins to survive. And that, you know, that's both the Howe model and the Deich model. But for Newcastle, for various different reasons, a lot of which I think boil down to the fact that it's not an unfamiliar place to go. And also, it's not a happy club. Like, yeah. clearly, there are so many tensions there. It, they can't recreate that kind of unity. This is the thing, yeah. They, they are, in the words of, uh, the immortal words of AVB, in a negative spiral. Uh, but I think, you, I think you can have a lot of sympathy for Benitez's situation. But equally... I do think there's an issue in the sense that, uh, and this is such a pattern from his career, he allows these problems to too easily bleed onto the pitch. And it almost seems like they, they, they consume him sometimes more than actually doing the job he has at hand, which I suppose, and there's a cl- the classic counter-example that this weekend is Conte. I mean, he, he's had similar issues, uh, given, given he's been complaining about the quality of the team, and yet he just he still improvised. Um, he still set the right mood for that game. Uh, he, cha- he changed the mood from the Burnley match and where it was Benitez I mean, he saw the exact same at Liverpool in 2009-10 once there was that neg- negativity coming in kind of where it overtook any positive vibes say from um, promotion it, almost, it, it takes on a momentum of its own almost well, it's the, the problem p- with, polit- with club politics like that mm. is it does ultimately give the players an excuse yeah. like I mean on the, you know it's, it's two sides of one's coin on the one hand you can say or by talking about the off-the-field scenario, you've taken the pressure off the players. Mm. But on the other hand, you've told the players that you're losing because yeah. the board have got it wrong. And therefore, you know, I mean, we all know that players are always willing to take the first excuse they're presented with. Uh, Rafa, we said before, uh, 
he's always been in this sort of guy where if you're not 100% for him, yeah. you're against him. Yeah. You know, you, you might... And he's never wrong. You know, no. Well, and, and, some, and, some of us can... Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, but he, he no, he's, he's very bloody-minded. And yeah. he, if he doesn't feel like he's got the full backing, then he does throw his toys out the pram a bit and he's done it everywhere. And the interesting thing, like you're saying, is... Uh, Every club he's done this, except Real Madrid, where he was too scared yeah, yeah. To, to ever say anything out against Florentino Perez, even after Florentino Perez had sacked him and replaced him before even telling Rafa himself. Yeah. Um, and, and it is a shame, but there is something I almost weirdly admire about Mike Ashley and the, the fact that he does seem to be completely unmoved by the supporters all the time. It, it, it's an astonishing kind of level of... Uh, He's just it's so it's sure of himself. Yeah, but then yeah, again, so you know, he has made billions and billions of pounds yeah. uh, doing it his way. So fair enough. The other unbeaten team, Miguel, as you uh, definitely didn't predict, West Brom. Uh, Tony Pulis beating his heir apparent, Sean Dyche away at Burnley 1-0. Could it have been more Pulis to do it just 1-0? And uh, West Brom already looking good to get to 40 points. Yeah. Well, what's but the percentage now? Six of six of 40. So yeah, yeah. No, it's it's yeah. roughly 19%-ish. Yeah. What the hell's the But they... Yeah, their problem last year was they got to 40 and they just stopped. Mm. Do you think there's anything Pulis can do to actually ensure that he takes the team to the next step? Or do you think it's just because he is briefed on expectations and as far as he's concerned, that literally is what his job is to do? I'm not sure. Because I remember after, was it two years? Stoke City were in the Premier League for two years. Maybe it was, maybe it was a year, actually. And they signed uh, Tunkai Sanli. And he thought, this is actually, well, that's not, that's not a Pulis player at all. This is someone that can actually give them something different. And yet, he was barely used then. Or kind of, well, Pulis didn't, didn't get out of him, really. And I think it, it was like a pattern was set then. Because uh, I think even though Pulis maybe wants to break out, because obviously, I mean, like anyone else, he's got ambition. And he, you know, his friends like Mourinho talk about he should be at a bigger job and all this thing. But yet, you wonder then when it comes right down to it, he can't stop himself allowing to take the risk that actually that is, is a necessity to go that extra level. But West Brom, top of the table. Uh, well, joint top anyway. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Stoke 1, Arsenal 0. Probably the biggest surprise result of the weekend. Is that fair to say, Jack Pitbrook? Yeah, I think so. I mean, particularly after Arsenal beating Leicester uh, in their opening game. but And then all of a sudden, we're kind of back to this old scenario where they go to Stoke and the defensive problems are shown up. I think that, you know, it, it clearly wasn't like the first choice Arsenal back line. I think that it was not very difficult for Heze, who looked very impressive on his Stoke debut, to get in behind them. Uh, again, Arsenal slightly exposed to not having a holding player with Granit Xhaka. It's a midfield problem there, yeah. isn't it, still? Well, I think, yeah, I think it's, yeah. a lot of it, it comes to the fact that Wenger settled on this 3-4-2-1 towards the end of last season. And, you know, it did work for them and it mm. was effective, not least in the FA Cup final. 
but now they're you know new new season starts all of a sudden teams adapt yeah teams adapt they realize oh we know how to play against this not least because everybody else in the league plays yeah. like it and now Stoke Arsenal like might it. have to reconsider yeah. and also I think maybe we slightly overlooked because they won last week but Leicester really found out how to hurt that system through the back I mean like the amount of times Vardy got in got in behind now granted some of that's down to Vardy's pace but they they'd obviously seen something they could expose it with and this is going to be the challenge for for Wenger again now that once this is regularly rumbled he has to kind of slightly improvise himself or adapt again is he capable of a second adapt yeah I know and this is the problem was that this was Arsenal's first big like tactical change for literally years yeah having stuck with the 4-2-3-1 for a long time and if this doesn't work out then I'm not sure would you back Wenger to to tweak it in mm. such a way as to make it I, I, still, I still think they're finishing sixth which is what it and, and on the other side of that obviously it's a big win for Stoke mm. mainly because it might have bought Mark Hughes some time he was the favourite to be the next manager to leave. He was he was struggling. Then he gets a win over a top six side on live TV, which is always much more impactful in terms of how you are perceived. Yeah. It's just, you know, it shouldn't be, but it just yeah. is. It's just how things work. I, I felt that a little bit about Man City Everton on Monday night. Um, Pep Guardiola, curiously, after a one-all draw where they got a late equaliser, said it was... What did he say? It was a, it was a massive result for him. It he was. Said it was one of the one of the proudest nights of his career. One of the proudest nights of his career. So happy. Can you possibly um, what, explain to me why on earth that would be, Jack? Well, I I do think in the second half, City were really good, and it, you know, beating a team, you know, ultimately coming from one nil down and a man down at half time to draw one all in any game is pretty good. Um, and I thought in the second half, City were much better than they were in the first half. They created a lot of chances. And on another day, they actually could have won two or three one, which which says a lot for how well they played. I do think that, you know, even the red card notwithstanding, I thought that Guardiola got it wrong in the first half. For, this, uh, for the second time this season, he started with a three five two, 5 And I, my impression of three five two 5 is it's a fudge to avoid having to choose between either Aguero or Gabriel mm, up yes. front. Uh, if he plays, because I don't think, I mean, I, we covered this in the previous podcast, but I don't think Pep trusts Aguero to play up front on his own. So he feels like he has to have Gabriel with him. But by doing that, he needs to play a 3-5-2, which means moving Leroy Sane, who's the best player for the second half of last season, out to left wing back, which isn't his natural position. Of course, it was Sane's slip up, which let in Everton for yeah. Rooney's goal. And it was only in the second half where City played, you know, what was kind of started off as a sort of 3-5-1 and then became a kind of 4-4-1 or a sort of 2-6-1 in the second half that City actually started to create chances. And I, I, I think Aguero played much better, to be honest, the second half when he didn't have Gabriel to worry about, worrying about kind of occupying the same space. And in the second half, he was brilliant after a fairly ropey first half. Sterling's late goal there, the equaliser, and it was a very nice finish, the, the volley. What do you think about Everton? They got up to a half-decent start. Yeah. Rooney looks very sharp. Yeah, as, as, you, as you uh, predicted, kind of. Uh, Everton are, interestingly, I think the first opposition team that Pep Guardiola has failed to beat within his first three league meetings as, as a manager in any league. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, Ronald Koeman, who played is there him. anything to do with the fact that he played with him? Well, he, did, and what also, did you read into that? Actually, and he played, Koeman, he's literally played right right behind him. Yes. But it's actually, I mean, for all this talk of kind of Koeman also being part of that Barca school, he's actually not at all. He's much more pragmatic than any of them, and even like the, the way he will so his teams will be so much more pragmatic um, and and def- defensive, you could say. Um, I, in fact, you could almost say he's stylistically kind of the opposite to Guardiola. Um, he has an interesting mix of philosophies going yeah. on, but he's also 
he's fiercely ambitious in terms mm. of you know people that know him say that he is a guy who really you know his eyes are set on yeah. the Barca job and, and going as high as he he's can. He's not going to get the Barcelona job playing the kind of football that Everton played yesterday. You know, with no disrespect yeah. to it, it was no, a really no, effective way of getting the result. But you know, that kind of football is not going to get you that job. Yeah, but I, I think he could do. A, I mean, obviously now they've got a lot of money. Mashiri is going to back this club. I think you know, especially if you look down the line where they might get a new stadium which, as we know, is kind of a game-changer for clubs. They started this game with eight English players as well. Mm. Uh, it's the first time they've done that in the Premier League since 1997. Really, that means nothing. But at the same time, it means a lot for the fans. And if you do have a homegrown core, I think, like Tottenham showed, it, it can help in, in some ways, Jack. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, I think that there are lots of young English players who people are excited to see as well, like Holgate, Calvert-Lewin. Well, Calvert-Lewin looks very yeah. good every time yeah, I see him. Yeah, he looks incredibly lively. Uh, you know, they had Lookman on the bench. Keane was, I thought Keane was good uh, in times, although I think that there were there were moments when Aguero or Gabriel was running one-on-one against Keane, where Keane just looked like he wasn't quite sharp enough for it, but I presume that will come. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it, people do like to, to see that. And as Miguel touched on earlier, I think, What's been really impressive with Everton in the first two games is not even just Rooney's two goals, but Rooney's all-round play. Yeah. Like I was at a few of Rooney's last games for Manchester United at the back end of last year, a game which they lost at Tottenham and a game which they lost at Arsenal. And both those games, Rooney was useless. Like, there he, were genuinely times he, you saw Rooney, can he trap a ball anymore? Yeah, his touch had gone, he was slow, he was sluggish, he was off the pace. Um, and that was the moment when I thought, you know, you should get on the phone to Shanghai SIPG. Yeah. But in fact... <laughs> Very specific. Yeah, like, but now he's really good. Like, yeah. it's not, it's, he's well, aware, I, he's shot, his touch is back, he's really clear. He's, it's like watching Rooney from five years ago. Like, he's, just, he's half a step ahead yeah. of everyone else. I, I think you have to give him huge credit. I mean, uh, clearly, his, uh, his pride was hurt by, uh, by what's gone on in the last two, particularly the last year, even, even as opposed to getting dropped from, 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 from United. But to, to actually again affect it in such a way is usually, and, and even to go back, I mean, because back in fe- back in February we, we reported he was going to go to Everton in the first place. I mean, that at that stage of his career, that is, that is really brave, or not well, not brave, but it's, it's just re- really credible. Given so many other players, given when they've achieved as much as, as him, would have taken the easy option, taken taken the money. Now it's not that Everton aren't playing him well, but to really get back into that fight, I think I think he deserves a huge, huge respect for it. Yeah, you leave yourself quite exposed going yeah. there because everyone can see you every week. And then if you're not in the team, then all of a sudden, you know, not getting the Everton team mm. is different from not getting the Manchester United team. But now, I mean, if he can, you know, admittedly we're two Premier League games into the season, but he's played in Europe too. If he can keep playing like this, then why shouldn't he get back in the England squad ahead of the yeah. World Cup next year? I actually, yeah, I think his long range passing in particular. Yeah. And, and I've seen that a few times where, where you think he can really pick a long range pass. He's got the great vision, but he can execute it as well. So I wonder, you know, David Moyes kind of failed to use him in that deeper role. Yeah. With the arrival of Sigurdsson and also the fact that Klaassen's there and Sandro dropping deep and all these things, I wonder if they might change how they use him. But so far, I've been very impressed. Yeah, although let's definitely, actually, both of his goals so far were one-touch finishes. Yeah. yeah. No, which, I, spe- which speaks to that sharpness as well. I actually don't, I don't think he can be a midfielder. Mm. I th- I've never seen him play m- midfield well for England or for United. I think that his best stuff is probably, if he can't quite be a penalty box poacher, Maybe as a kind of second striker off Sandro, even although admittedly that is harder harder to figure out how that would work with Sigurdsson coming in. Yeah. But I think if they, if he can if he's sufficiently sharp enough to be effective in the box, which has been the evidence so far, that is probably where his main usefulness will be. And just before we leave, uh, Man City Everton, Miguel, do you have anything else to add? Well, one of the more. I mean, it was a very eventful match, but then to only add to it, to add to teeter and spectacle, was kind of more. Passive aggressive emotion from uh, from 
Guardiola. Um, it's it's something that's kind of increasingly difficult to avoid, and to be honest, kind of just have a few issues with. I mean, he seems to first of all, he seems to have taken on this kind of crusade against the uh, not crusade, but he seems to have this now this complex to media now. Whether that's justifiable or not, whether there's aspects of, of the British press or British the way questions are asked, you know, fair enough. But it's the level he goes to now, and, he, I, and even I think. What's th- his issue with? Sorry, specifically with the media. <laughs> well, I, well, I, his his main issue, basically, I think, seems to be that he doesn't like getting questioned the fact that he's not winning as many games either at Barcelona or Bayern. I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. It's difficult to get away from that because he was never this bad in Spain. He was never this bad in Germany. And aspects of the Spanish press could be kind of even even more. Um, I'd say more invasive than uh, sure, th- yeah, th- yeah. Th- than England in that way. So it is, tr- and it, it is difficult not to pin it down to kind of a just a narkiness. The fact that he's not things aren't going the way he expected them to. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because you know if City win and play well, he he could be such a fascinating person to listen yeah. to in a press conference, and he he talks about football in a way which is I mean I've never I've genuinely never heard anyone talk about football in yeah. public like that. Agreed. You kind of it's it's is it's an education mm. to hear him explaining things, although you often miss it because he's explaining things at, you know, 200 words a minute. Yeah, yeah. And you're not quite picking up the nuances of what he's getting at. But on the other hand, like when City lose or if he's upset about something, like the rudeness, yeah. the sarcasm, uh, the insincerity. And the thing is, he can complain about some of the questions, but lo- some of those questions that he doesn't like come because of the fact that he's completely blanked a relevant issue. Like if he's not, if he's not willing to discuss Kyle Walker or a miss... Then it's only natural that the, the interview kind of will, okay. Well, let's go on to the, ne- the next subject. I mean, you know, w- w- one of the one of the reasons he's at he's at Man City on is, is because of international broadcasting. So this this is the other side of the deal. So you know, he's a bit surly. Uh, he's a bit moody, especially after they they lose. How different is that to Jose Mourinho? Well, I think with Mourinho, <laughs> like uh, the two sides of the same coin. I think I do. Th- I do think that with Mourinho, like yeah, he says some kind of surprising stuff a lot of the time and he can be quite unpleasant and also like Guardiola quite insincere but with Mourinho there is this kind of like playfulness or sense of theatre which certainly from the media perspective and I think probably from a viewer's and reader's perspective as well is entertaining like he does you know he's willing to call people out at press conferences or Hmm. you know choose a set the set the back page agenda with some bar and it's funny like he's he is a funny entertaining engaging man or at least he's capable of being those things when he's in the right mood whereas with Guardiola there's none of that kind of sense of theatre at all I feel like he feels like he just doesn't really want to get stuck in actually that that is one grand difference with Mourinho I think Mourinho for him every single press conference every single media engagement becomes part of the game Whereas with Guardiola is like I I can't be bothered with this. Like, he's got more. He's got bigger things to think about because something's gone wrong with his team. Um, but even in relation, to that, I there were times with Mourinho as well when he was kind of just in a like a, a Chelsea, remember, and he was in kind of a fairly neutral mood. And you'd ask him some kind of general football question. Actually, it was the, I remember one of the best <laughs> press conferences. Like it was an education. It was Mourinho talking about Messi and how to stop Messi and what he can. Two days after. Um, he Messi basically beat Bayern three 0 in the Champions League that time. Yeah, he he was he was amazing that day. But then of course, but even when Mourinho's not up for it, that becomes like when he, when he's you know stone cold in the press and all that. That becomes or stonewalling the press. Sorry, that becomes part of the uh, part part of the uh, part of the performance as well. Whereas Guardiola is just his his approach is 
Yeah, like ultimately, Jose does like being in the media. Like yeah. he likes being on the back pages. He likes being on telly, and he likes he likes the performance of it. Mm. Whereas you always think with Pep, he thinks, you know, why should I have to explain my tactics to people who wouldn't who don't understand two percent of what I understand about football? I don't. I mean, I don't know if that's literally what he thinks, but that's certainly like the impression that sometimes you get from yeah. listening to him talk. He certainly comes across. Uh, occasionally as if he's not really enjoying himself over here, which is one of the main things. We're yet to see, really, I think, the fun side uh, of Guardiola. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that one develops. Uh, we've just got to skirt over some of the, the rest of these Premier League results. Southampton beat West Ham 3-2. That was a stoppage time penalty from Charlie Austin, but Chikorito had scored uh, twice in the first half. Uh, no, sorry, he scored twice, not in the first mm. half. In the first half, Marko Arnautovic was sent off. Did you see that, Miguel? I did. Actually. It was uh, a fairly... Terrible elbow. Um, the new signing, twenty-five million pounds, tipped uh, by someone in this room to be the flop of the year, <laughs> I believe. And uh, yeah, not a good start. He got a zero out of ten right. uh, in one newspaper I saw. But Chikorito's two goals. Did you know that all thirty-eight of his Premier League goals have come within the penalty area? I did not. That's it probably doesn't surprise you, yeah, but no. it's interesting that he literally can't score from outside the penalty area. Southampton uh, with a three-two win. Uh, they actually hadn't scored, uh, I believe a home goal for nine hours of football in the league. So Southampton are back on track. They actually look like, I think, a half-decent side. Milano Gabbiadini mm. uh, is a handy player. Leicester beat Brighton 2-0. Brighton struggling a little bit at the start, um, but they really rate this Colombian winger they've just signed, Jose Luis Izquierdo, who they think could be one of the best wingers in the world. So uh, follow that one closely. And uh, Bournemouth nil, Watford 2. Richarlison gets his first goal uh, since arriving from Brazil. And uh, Etienne Capoue, uh, continues his weird goal-scoring streak. Yeah, I mean, the, I think Richarlison's going to be a really exciting signing for Watford. The big issue before the start of the season at Watford was that they didn't have any pace in behind. Like, they you know, they had, well, only had one proper striker, Troy Deeney, and he was injured. But in the last few days, signing Richarlison and Andre Gray, they've got so much pace in behind now. Andre Gray is basically like a better, quicker, more mobile Deeney. And all of a sudden, you can see they do have the pieces in place to play the 4-3-3 three, three that Marco Silva wants. And I think they'll be fine this season. He's a good coach. And uh, I, I still think Watford could be the, of any of that mid-table gaggle of yeah. teams, I think they could be the team that, that cracks the top half this season. I noticed uh, one result was left out there, Ed. Skipped over, was, was it? There? Some South London club. Yeah. Oh, Oh Don't, no! Don't yeah. Hamlet. I actually didn't. Mm. I, I didn't. I didn't note down the goal scorers. I remember it was Sadio Mane that scored the winner. Yeah, Sadio Mane scored the winner right. as Liverpool beat Crystal Palace one 0 at Anfield. A second half winner. Uh, Frank de Boer has started zero from two. He's now the favourite to be the first Premier League manager to leave. Miguel, are you happy with that? There we go. Yeah. Is yeah. there any thoughts on any thoughts on Liverpool knocking off in a yeah, simple win? Um, I suppose good week for them all around and Coutinho looks like he's going to stay what yeah. I would say is this is a really hard this is a really hard time this season if you're playing that Champions League playoff game because you're yeah. trying to get up to speed in the yeah. Premier League while also playing two massive games which are quite difficult uh, uh, also to have, yeah to have games that are that yeah. momentous at this point when you're, kind of, you're not really feeling the season Wenger yet. has always blamed the 8-2 against mm. Manchester United in 2011 on the fact they just played two legs against Udinese yeah. Champions League playoff it's really really like it's, if you get an easy team you can get through it but if you get a hard team it's hard yeah. but the, the first leg against Hoffenheim puts Liverpool in a, in a great spot in the Champions League we will be talking about potential Champions League groups later uh, first I want to go to Spain mm -hmm. uh, La Liga which got kicked off over the weekend Real Madrid and, and Barcelona obviously starting off as they always do Atletico Madrid disappointed 2-2 uh, draw at uh, Girona how do we see this this season uh, just on a, on a wider kind of La Liga glance I guess do we think Real Madrid might actually just pull away and make it a one-team sort of title race this year? Uh, unless Barca bring in essentially a new spine, a centre-half, 
uh, attack midfielder and a forward, then yes, basically. Um, because there's such a gap between this. I mean, and the, the squad, it's not even about the first 11 with, at, at that level with these two teams. It's about, and although actually there is now, a math, since Neymar's there gone, is a, there is a, a gulf in yeah, that as well now. There's yeah. a gulf in that now as well. So there's a gulf, yeah, both in terms of the 11 and the squad. Uh, so if Barca don't address that, it could be a very difficult season, but they, they could be looking at it. It's actually it's quite an interesting inversion, given that just half a decade ago we were talking about Barca being the new, the new like in the, in the same way that Real Madrid were identified with the old European Cup because the amount of times they won it and because of the, the history they created and the sparkle of it all, that Barca were, were were that to the modern Champions League. But already so quickly, Real Madrid could completely change that. It's unbelievable, really. I mean, last season the difference between the two teams was the depth rather than mm. the, the first 11s were virtually yeah, as, as Barca proved in the last Clasico. But what we had was. Uh, one bench at Real Madrid, which was uh, happy, really. I mean, they're all guys mm. who, who they wanted to be playing, but they weren't unhappy that they were sat on the bench. And uh, Barcelona brought in players like Andre Gomez, who were vastly o- overpaid and basically not good enough to step up to the level. And, and of all the players they bought last summer, you could basically say that Samuel Umtiti looks like he could be up to Barcelona yeah. level. But all of the other guys have not made it. And uh, this summer's amazingly being worse for them obviously losing Neymar Jack do you, do you think do you, I mean what, how are Barcelona going to go about this well I mean clearly they need a kind of you know start from scratch rebuilding on the similar to what they did what, back in 2003 when the um, uh, Joan Laporta board first yes. came in yes yes uh, and you know that took, within three years they won the Champions League again but they I mean it's, it's so hard because it's we're not used to I think seeing like the decline of a great team to you know from winning the Champions League in 2015, mm-hmm. at which point people were saying, "Is this even better than the Pep team? Are they going to be the first team to retain it?" Which of course Real Madrid became, uh, and you know less than what yeah just over two years on from then, they're now well, looking were, at for like un- unimaginably far away from Real Madrid. Yeah, and that's the thing. Essentially, Barcelona's team, or sorry, Guardiola's 2008-2011 uh, team, they are basically the peak of that cycle that started with, with, with Laporte in 2003 well, it wasn't like it wasn't a like Guardiola kind of uh, revolutionised everything again it was more so he took them on another level at, at a little, after a little bit of a dip but but now it's, it's, it's as if it's gone full cycle and they need a 2003 situation yet again yeah they do they need clearly I mean the Rizé and Bartomeu board have bas- I mean they basically did destroyed what they were handed and they need a, a new bunch of guys to come in and give them that kind of impetus and basically reimpose the right values because mm. clearly you know the pursuit of Neymar and big money glamour mm. players ahead of everything else has completely de- destroyed everything that everything that and people also, worked I mean, so hard on given given the club used to value themselves such purism there's been so many gaudy elements in the last few years mm-hmm. as well like right down to the kind of the, the sponsorships the uh, the nature the Neymar deal everything, and, e- and even the fact that that has just ended up with this humiliation really of having lost him of course from from Mescaon club to a mess of a club hey. uh, <laughs> thank you Real Madrid and Barcelona are uh, obviously top of their pots in the respective Champions League draw. That, you may have noticed, is a perfect segue into <laughs> this. Looking ahead to Thursday, 6pm, an awful time uh, for that to happen. The Europa League draw, if you're wondering, is Friday lunchtime. Um, pot 1, I'll just quickly run through, is Real Madrid, Bayern, Chelsea, Juventus, Benfica, Monaco, Spartak and Shakhtar. Pot 2, Barcelona, Atletico, PSG, Dortmund, Man City, Porto, Man United and likely Sevilla. Pot 3 is Tottenham, Basel, Roma, Anderlecht, Besiktas and likely Napoli, Olympiacos and Liverpool too. And I won't go through Pot 4 because they're much harder to pronounce. But Miguel, looking at those, the interesting thing for me is 
just how bad it could get for one of the English teams. Yeah. But at the other end, it's really easy. So what would you say is the hardest draw for Tottenham and Liverpool, for example? Yeah. They're going to be in, in pot three. Because they get there, there's, there's the danger of them getting two of the really, really big. I mean, I suppose Juventus, yep. Barcelona, Tottenham, yeah. Leipzig is a possible group. That's got to be the worst case scenario, possibly. Yeah, that is a horror show. <laughs> but, but equally, they could get Spartak, Moscow, uh, Porto, Tottenham, and then Apoel or, or Star Bucharest. The things look look far better for them that way. What do you think uh, would be the most interesting matchups, Jack, in the the group stage? Well, I think. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people would love to see Tottenham against Atletico Madrid, yeah. which, of course, we could get uh, because of the similarities there between Pochettino and Diego Simeone. Well, actually, that's interesting. It's because one of the problems with the recent Champions League has been how often we see the same fixtures. Exactly, like, so yeah. Barca, PSG, Arsenal, PSG, say, oh, Arsenal, Chelsea, Champions PSG. League. So, I mean, even so, so, some, of, some of the fixtures here we have, we've either never seen or... Um, or rarely seen. I mean, one is unfortunately they can't get each other, but it's 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 amazing that actually Chelsea Real Madrid have never met in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just looking. I mean, I think that's a great point. Just looking at like potential ties we could get here, that would be like that. Mm. I mean, you could have. I mean, Man United against Juventus is not a game that we've seen I, for a while. I, I was actually thinking that. Also Man United would be terrific. I'd love to do a piece on the rivalry the in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, Manchester United versus Juventus um, would be good. The thing is, what you want is the group stages for these super clubs mm. really are almost a cakewalk still. Yeah. Um, I understand what Michelle Platini was trying to do. But, but the, the nature is there is still always one group be- just cause, because there's always too many teams for the top, for the yes. top two. That there's always one group that, that engages. Platini tried to get all the champions in there, which I think is a good thing broadly mm. for European football. However, it does mean you do get some heavyweight groups paired with some, some smaller sides. But I, I agree. I think Manchester United versus Juventus would be an interesting one because it's mm-hmm. one we've not seen for quite a while. I'd, I'd quite like to see maybe Bayern Munich versus PSG. I think they could both dominate their leagues this season by a distance So to see them against each other. What, what do you think... Liverpool against someone like Atletico Madrid or or, Bar- yeah. or even Barcelona, if you're bearing in mind what's happened in, in the off-season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give us plenty to write about. And, yeah. and also, you know, you've got Leipzig there who could get Liverpool, which would be fun uh, for Naby Keita reasons. I mean, if, 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 uh, if Liverpool played Barcelona and Coutinho scored at the new Camp, he could do the fantastic thing of <laughs> refusing to <laughs> celebrate a goal scored against a team he wanted to join, yeah, yeah. which I think was last seen by, I think Robert Snodgrass did it. Great respect. Yeah. Great, great, great respect. Uh, I believe that comes under hashtag touch of class. Yeah. Uh, and much, to, uh, <laughs> to be honest, most of our podcast does as well. Uh, that probably wraps <laughs> oh, up uh, this week's beautiful outro. edition. <laughs> Uh, today, you may notice we were a day late uh, with a, a slight studio issue next week because of the bank holiday. We will also be out on Tuesday. But thank you nonetheless for listening. Please continue to subscribe and listen and review us in great numbers, which we have been. We will have be, uh, extra questions from listeners next week. So if you chuck those into your iTunes review, I guarantee you that we will get round to them. Uh, if not, then tweet us uh, at IndieFootball, at Miguel Delaney at Jack Pitbrook uh, and we will get back to you so thank you again for joining us this has been Miguel Delaney oh thank you this has been Jack Pitbrook thank you very much I've been Ed Malian and this has been the Indie Football Podcast thank you very much planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.